This is PRN, your as-needed dose of medical knowledge. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. And I'm Chandler Davis. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Adward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. Everyone, my name is Dr. Christina Joy. I am currently a trauma attending at the University of Puerto Rico Medical Center. I've been there for five years now. Uh, my medical, my medical school training was here in the island of Puerto Rico, and then I did my training uh, residency in surgery in UPMC Pittsburgh Mercy Hospital. Was there for five years, and then returned back uh, to be a trauma surgeon. I actually don't have the extra year of trauma and critical care um, fellowship. I was able to just come back home and work right away. Well, so everyone listening, this is actually my sister-in-law, Christina. So I'm so excited to have you on, Dr. Joy. Um, Weird for me to call you that because I've known you since I was like 10 years old or nine. (laughs) I think you went to my... uh, my elementary school graduation, if I remember correctly. So I did went to Miami for that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, so exciting to have you on. I've had people ask me to talk about trauma surgery. And I was just wondering if you could tell us what a normal week looks like for you. Sure. So trauma surgery, I think is one of the, the surgery, surgical specialties that has like the easiest, I I would say day to day, Uh, meaning that we, probably have a lot of free time because we work as a group. There's always a group. We're 24 seven in the hospital, but there's plenty of us. So, you know, we kind of rotate through, through the times we have to cover the hospital. A normal week for me, I would have one call uh, a week. That means I have to stay there for 24 hours and then just do my regular, regular job the next day, which probably amounts to 29 to 30 hours. Uh, I do that five times a month. Uh, sometimes six, but the other days I just have to go see the patients I'm assigned to. And then I pretty much get to go home. Um, some one day we have clinic, but I think for a, for a surgeon, it's very, it's, it's a nice schedule. You always have your schedule in advance. Um, you just, you know, when you're going to be on the next days, never, no one's ever going to call you, you know, you're off, you're off. Um, so compared to other surgical specialties where you're on 365 days, a year for your patients. This specialty kind of allows you to have a lot of free time in that sense that you don't have to respond to emergencies of your patients. You have a team and someone's always there that can respond to those uh, circumstances. So I think for a woman, especially trauma sounds scary, but it's actually a very good um, specialty because you have a lot of free time. Yeah, I still work. I still work a lot of hours a week, but compared to other surgical specialties, you do have a lot more free time. Um, Yeah, at some point, I definitely want to ask you a little bit more about those two beautiful nephews of mine and (laughs) (laughs) family balance. But um, first, I just kind of wanted to ask you what attracted you to this field to begin with. So, Alana, I did not. I did not think I wanted to do trauma surgery when I started. I always went into medical school thinking I wanted to do plastic surgery. I did my med school rotations and I definitely wanted to do surgery. I definitely love the plastic surgery uh, field. 
I applied to plastic surgery, didn't get in, and then I did a preliminary year in general surgery. During that prelim year, I discovered that I wanted to operate inside the body and not outside the body. So that scratched plastic surgery right away. Um, and I was fortunate enough that I got offered a second year categorical position at that same institution. Um, so I finished my training and I loved cardiothoracic surgery. I mean, to me, there's nothing more beautiful than operating in the heart. That is one of the prettiest surgeries, most technically challenging surgeries that, you know, I think anyone can, can see and, and do. So I really wanted to do cardiothoracic surgery. Also didn't match into cardiothoracic surgery, got super pissed at the system, really. And I knew I wanted to come back to the island. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to go back and work. Where can I work where I can operate in the chest? Where can I still work in the lung and in the heart? And I thought trauma. So it's a funny story. I called my mom and I said, hey, you remember that guy? He's still the trauma director at the trauma hospital in Puerto Rico. I need his phone number. So my mom got me his phone number. And in my call room as a fourth year resident, I called him, introduced myself and said I was interested in coming back to the island and working in, in the trauma um, hospital. He was super excited because two, um, two of his colleagues were leaving. So it was kind of like a perfect timing for me to come in, met him and got the job. And I've been happy ever since. I cannot even tell you. I think people should keep their minds open. Sometimes a door closes, but you don't even know what's, ex what's expecting you on the other side. Love, love my job. Got to get back with your brother. Have two beautiful children. So my life really is like perfect. I never thought it was going to be like that. I have residents. I love teaching love having them around. They keep you young. They keep you up to date. You know, you always have to study and make sure you, you have everything, you know, the newest <laughs> guidelines because they are going to know them and you're going to look bad if you don't know them. So it's kind of like a good symbiotic relationship where they help you a lot, but you also get a lot of, a lot of knowledge from them. So yeah, I didn't plan on doing trauma. It just happened. <laughs> you just fell into it. So what about for people that are like, I know that I want to do trauma. What kind of advice would you right. have for them when they're starting off either applying to residency mm -hmm. or in residency? So definitely when they're applying to general surgery residency, if you know you like trauma, you have to go to a place where there's a level one trauma center. Um, you have to be exposed to that to be sure that you get good letters of recommendation from people that are actually, you know, recognized in the field, uh, that you're going to have a lot of experience. Uh, Doing, doing complicated cases or can kind of get a bread and butter feel for what it is to be in a trauma surgery service. Um, definitely, I would say for the States, not, I mean, not, no one, um, how do you say this? No one really need, ugh, no one, no, I don't think any job will require you to have the the fellowship, but it's always good. Sorry, don't laugh at me, Alana. <laughs> it's okay. We can speak some Spanglish and I can translate. <laughs> you can work without the, the critical care and trauma board, but I think it's very good to have it. It's just a one-year um, fellowship. You can do two years if you want to do trauma surgery, but I don't think that's really necessary. I think you're just an underpaid attending at that point. You know what you're doing when you're graduating um, general surgery. So the, the one year is more for critical care management of patients. 
so you can run an ICU better and kind of know that these are very complicated patients. Uh, so it's nice to have that background. I felt really strong with my residency. I felt ready. You know, we had a really good, really good training. So I think it just depends on how ready do you feel when you're done with your general surgery training and whether where you want to go requires you to have that fellowship. But it's a one year fellowship, um, you know, with as with any other fellowship, you need to be on point in your in training exams. You you should do some research, just kind of ump that CV uh, so you can be the best candidate, you know, for like as for any specialty. Now, is it true that you can do a critical care fellowship as a surgeon, like between your residency? General surgery residency, it's tough. I don't think there's any extra time for anything. I mean, we can't even moonlight. Do you know what moonlighting is? Some specialties are allowed to moonlight. That means working at an ER and you get paid really well to work somewhere else outside of your residency. So ER, internal medicine, some other specialties that are that have a little more downtime, they are able to do that. Their residencies allow that. General surgery will never allow you to do that. I mean, you're working 80-hour work weeks, sometimes a little more. Um, there's really no time. Interrupt your residency to do something and come back. I mean, I might be wrong. I don't know. I've been out of the game for five years, so I don't know what's going on right now, but I never heard of that. No. I thought I heard of a friend who was like they had a similar situation where they had prelim students accepted mm-hmm. that were accepted then for the categorical as well or into an, another class and then you mm-hmm. can only graduate so many residents in a year so then somebody had to take mm-hmm. a gap year and so they were allowed mm-hmm. to do that in their gap year or they were allowed to do some right. sort of training in their gap year so I'm wondering right. there's definitely research you, there's there's residencies that had a, a two-year gap in between their third and fourth year to do research um, and that is that is explained to you when you start your residency um, but sometimes if that happens uh, or say someone leaves the residency and someone can take that spot there's one spot left or stuff like that that can always happen um so if you do have that time and you're guaranteed the position after that time for sure you can do uh something else you would have to have requirements in order to be able to do the fellowship so i'm not sure how many years of surgical residency you would need to be able to do this fellowship and sit for the boards because you you do have to have a board afterwards. So you, I'm sure that you have to have at least three years, I would have to say, before you can do that. I mean, I'm just guessing. Um, that's where I could probably say someone is ready to do to do that kind of kind of fellowship. But research definitely um, rotations in somewhere different. Say so you want pediatric surgery, that's a very hard uh, fellowship to get into. You can go do research in a pediatric hospital. I've heard of that for sure. I find that's actually pretty common that people have to take research years, more common than I thought. I didn't realize that that Mm -hmm. was even an option. Mm -hmm. Um, So another question that one of the students asked me was, you know, what is the difference between a general surgeon and a trauma surgeon in terms of their scope of practice? Like, are there any limitations Mm -hmm. between the two or is it just like a schedule difference? 
There's many differences. I think a general surgeon will stick to general surgery cases. They're, they have a clinic, you know, they have an office, they get to post their cases, they have regular OR days. So maybe you do five OR days a week, three OR days a week. Um, and they're generally, you know, depending on what they what they're doing. I mean, there's hernias, there's colon surgery, gallbladder surgery, um, stomach, you name it, you know, but these are all scheduled cases where you get to see the patient beforehand, you get to, you know, schedule the surgery and do that. There's usually no vast and a trauma surgeon just gets to do, you know, emergency cases that come in, no preparation. You don't know what's going on. You have to do vascular, you have to do thoracic, you have to do abdominal surgery. So the the cases are very different. The there's no prep, you know, there's, there's no prepping you for the case. So you don't know where you're going to get that night or that day. And you just have to have to do that. Trauma surgery is different. I think here in the Island than in the States, at least where I trained, there is no backup from vascular thoracics or cardiac surgery. So we get to do a lot more, which is kind of one of the best things I think about my practice is that I get to do a lot more than I would maybe in where I, where I train. I don't want to say everywhere in the States, but where I trained where vascular, thoracic, cardiac, interventional radiology were readily available, you know, 15 minutes and they were there and they could do whatever that patient needed. So here we're, it's us, we do all the pediatric trauma also. Um, so it's, it's great. I mean, for surgery wise, it's, it's a great, great practice. I think we could have one of the best fellowships in the island, in the, in the nation, really. Um, the cases that we get, the level of trauma that we get, Sadly, the weapons that are here, you know, it's like military weapons, not just handguns, which is the most common uh, weapon in where I train in Pittsburgh. So, I mean, it's depending where you are, it's going to be, you know, if you're in Detroit, if you're in Maryland, if you're in New York City, of course, you're going to get these kind of like big, big cases, but maybe other areas that are, that are smaller and not necessarily see that type of patient. Um, so yeah, I think there's a huge difference between general and, and, and trauma surgery, but you can do both. I do a lot of acute care surgery. Um, so that means perforated diverticulitis, acute appendicitis, acute cholecystitis. I do all of that when it comes to the ER, cause we do trauma, but we also cover acute care surgery. So yeah, I do get to do a lot of general surgery. It's just it's the complicated general surgery. The ones that get in, gets in through the emergency department, not the ones you get to schedule calmly, you know, and clear, clear the, the patient. There's your, there's your nephew. <laughs> Is he saying hi to Titi? Say hi to Titi. Dile hola, Lana. Hola. <laughs> he's so big. He's going to be a big, he's going to be a good boy. <laughs> It sounds like a lot of your, what you get to practice is kind of location-based. And also to clarify Mm -hmm. for people that are listening, Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States. So that means all Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, natural born Mm -hmm. U.S. citizens. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like I I have to say that quite often living in the States. So it's surprising how many people, yeah, it's surprising how many people don't know it or don't know where it's located, don't know it's an island. I mean, I was surprised. I'm talking about educated 
people, you know, like peers that asked me how long was my drive to get to the to get to Pittsburgh and it's like you're joking, I've, right? I've been asked many times <laughs> if I speak Portuguese in Puerto Rico, which I'm like, I mean, the beginning of the word sounds so I mean, you could, you, could, you could see where that comes from. Yeah. I mean, it's I just wish. Funny. Yeah. So I was talking about location and it sounds like that really mm -hmm. impacts the kind of things you do. Can you only practice in big cities or are there trauma surgeons in smaller areas as well? So you... I would, I would have to say big cities, just because that's where more of the cases are located and talking level one, there's level one, two and three trauma centers, right? So level one is you have all, you know, it's the big, the tertiary center where everything is, you know, kind of available. Um, and you need that, you need a lot of other specialties, you need good critical care, you need nurses that are very aware and comfortable treating these patients because it's just not the regular patient that had just one thing happen to them. You know, they, they have head trauma, they have thoracic abdominal trauma, they have a lot of orthopedic trauma all at once. So this is very, it's a very complicated patient that you need to take care of. So I would say, yes, you need a, a big center with a lot of ancillary help uh, and specialties that are readily available to you in case you need them. Um, definitely you can do trauma at a smaller hospital, but I can guarantee you it's only going to be stable trauma patient. It's bad. They're gonna, they're just gonna take them to, a, we're the only level. We're actually a level two that works like a level one. We're not a level two because we don't have uh, 365 days a year coverage of IR. We don't have cardiac surgery. We don't have a pump team available. We don't have a lot of the requirements that a level one trauma needs. We're definitely working towards that. Um, but it literally works as a level one trauma center. I mean, I, I trained in a level one trauma center and I know what happens there. I think, I think we do a great job. Um, without all of that, I can only imagine it would be better if we had everything that we needed. Um, a lot of money goes into that. And well, if you're aware, Puerto Rico doesn't have a lot of that. Um, so I would say, yes, you definitely need to be at a high volume city. If not, you're not going to do anything. <laughs> it's right, right. And so my next question, I assume with trauma, that means that there is a high potential for loss of a patient. How do you generally mm -hmm. deal with that, especially, I mean, you've been in practice for a while, but if you're newer and this is your first patient that you've lost, you mm -hmm. know, how did, how have you personally done with loss, dealt with loss of a patient? So this is a complicated question because there's different types of patients in my mind, right? There's the guy who was in a drug deal and killed three people and was shot seven times and comes to me, Right. There is the old, old guy who was driving, who shouldn't have been driving, who crashed into a supermarket and injured four people, and he's also injured. And there is the two-year-old that he was either was, you know, battered by parents or fell off a bed or... So there's di different types of trauma patients. Um, and I process those problems and deaths very differently. It's very easy for me, and sorry if anyone gets offended, to to lose someone in the first, like the first patient, you know, I get a guy who killed four people and he's shot in seven different areas and he dies in the table while I'm operating. I can get over that pretty quickly. Um, I just go tell the, the family what happened, what we found. I stay with them for a little while, 
Puerto Ricans are very, very passionate people. They're very dramatic. There's a lot of yelling. That is the hardest part for me is, is the seeing the families kind of like get the get the, the news. But I don't have a problem with that. I can go about with my day just just as fine, right? Um, the pediatric patients are the worst for me. I mean, I I cannot I cannot even tell you how hard it is for me to see a baby or a kid with you know any type of trauma, especially after having two kids. It's just it's horrible. It's unfortunate. Why them? You know, why this happened to them? Obviously, there's some negligence usually involved. You know, they, they weren't wearing a booster seat. They didn't have their seatbelt on. Um, they were unsupervised running in a bicycle. There's always something, you know, that could have been prevented usually with these kids. Um, so you're angry almost at the parents, uh, but you have to take care of the kids. So losing a kid is horrible, horrible. I cry every single time. I talk to the parents and I just, I can't, you know, it's horrible. You pray for your own. You wish this never happens to them. So it's hard. Kids are hard. It's just, it's unfair, right? And then if you have an old, old person who clearly, you know, they need less of a trauma to, to lose their lives usually because of all the other comorbidities that they have, then you're like, well, they're old, you know, they had a good life. We did everything that we could. Usually family withdraws care sometimes if they're too, too sick, you know, or, or we as physicians are able to say, you know, we don't think any going any further is, is worth it. Or, or if they die in the OR table, it's sad, but it's, it's there, they have their life, you know, it, 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 you know, it's just the way it's the way it had to go for them. So there's different kinds of patients and situations and things I can deal with differently. Um, and it just depends on the circumstance. Uh, and really, if I had an injury that was literally unsurvivable and you see like, you know, just, just no way you can repair all of this and the patient exsanguinates in the bed, you know, I don't feel that way. I feel bad when I could have done something and I go back in the case and I said, man, I miss that, you know, and that's happened two times in my life. And I, that's very hard to get over, but you know what will never happen to me again. Um, and I, I think everyone should do that. No matter what, what practice you're in, you do something, it goes wrong. Just go back, review it and see what you could have done differently so that the next time it comes around, you're, you're on top of it. So I've had that twice and that's very hard on yourself to, to, you know, to kind of get over that because of you, maybe if it was someone else that they would have made it, you know what I mean? Like you, you think that way. Um, but yeah, for the most part, my patients are like patient number one. Uh, or they're drunk and they're in, you know, motorcycles or driving, or they're just doing something that they shouldn't be doing. So, you know, it's kind of like a, it's, it's not that hard, you know, it just depends on the situation. So you try your best to save them, but you are able Absolutely. to process no it. Matter, just, like, no matter, it through. Yeah. No matter what I, try my best and selfishly it's because I love doing it and I want to be successful you know I want to save everyone of course I want to be I want to have a good name I want to save the most complicated cases even though you killed four people you know well you're my patient so I am going to take care of you you know the best way I can I never think of that when I operate on someone I never think of the situation uh, I think that would be wrong that's not your job to judge anyone you know but it's your patient. You try to do the best you can. 
if you lose them, when you look back at the situation, that helps you kind of deal with it. Right. So in terms of like, so I'm potentially thinking that I want to do OB and you've known this Mm -hmm. for a while. Um, And like Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that I hear are, you know, don't do that because you're going to get sued so often. And I'm always curious about other Mm -hmm. professions is trauma surgery, especially Mm -hmm. since you do lose patients. Is that one of the professions that Mm -hmm. gets sued more often or equivalent to other professions? I'm sorry. I didn't look this up, but I, it's, it depends on when you are, where you are. And, and I really do think in including trauma. It's just the, that report and that relationship you established before and after with the family, right? You need to be very honest. You need to say exactly what you think it's going to happen. I usually try to draw a more dim picture, you know, than, than what it is just to keep them aware that this can go anyway. And then when you're done, kind of like go, you go talk to them again. Us in the University of Puerto Rico, where we have a malpractice insurance through the government where where I'm never going to get sued in a personal level, just the University of Puerto Rico will get sued. Um, so that's, we call that like an umbrella uh, here that's very helpful for us. That's where, that's why all the complicated, very like high risk patients get operated on there because of that, you know, kind of like uh, incentive where you can practice and you know, you're going to never going to be sued in a personal level. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you this, maybe I've gone to three, three jury, whatever you call it, you know, juicios, how do you say that? Like judicial. Like judicial judicial circumstances where it's usually uh, the family that, that had the shorter end of the stick, you know, who they killed or, or, you know, whoever got paralyzed because of the car accident. Um, is suing that other person. So I'd not really sued because of the surgery that you did, but you have to be there because of the situation and explain what you did. So never in the five years, this is only five years though, that I've been there, we've gotten sued because of uh, management that we did. I think people are very thankful. Um, and as long as you're honest and have a good relationship, you know, and keep it honest with the family, um, I think... I think you're going to be okay. You need to do the best that you can be, you know, the best that you can do. You need to explain everything very well and have good rapport with family members for, you know, to minimize that. There's always going to be a lawsuit. I don't think you can ever be a physician and never be sued. Um, If you work, you're going to be sued. There's people out just looking at opportunities to sue you. But if you do what you're doing, you're going to be fine. So I looked it up after, and the U.S. rate for trauma surgeons to get lawsuits is 0.34 lawsuits per 100,000 patients per year. So that's actually pretty low compared to some other specialties like OB-GYN and even just general surgery. I know that before we kind of talked about, you know, I came to you and I was like, I'd love to do a podcast with you. What would be something you'd want to talk about? So in a smaller segment, basically, I want to ask you about you know, you said preventative care. That's one thing that could prevent so many of these surgeries that I have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, what kinds of preventative care would kind of make the greatest impact on your patient population that you're seeing? So only 5% of trauma, and this is actually a, a true statistic, is not preventable, meaning it's a true accident. 95% of trauma is preventable. It's the most common cause of death in people 
zero to 45 years of age. So it's all prevention. You know, our job is not only to operate, our job is to send a message, you know, use your seatbelt, don't drink and dive, don't text and drive, don't jump off that cliff, don't, you know, I'm not saying stay in your house in a glass, you know, I don't know, box, but you you know where circumstances that you're putting yourself at risk, you know, rappelling or doing all these things. Sadly, we've had some cases of people, you know, that are coming here. It's a very common place to, for cruises to stop. And there's a lot of attractions and there's a lot of fun things to do. All those fun things to do come with a with a risk. Right. And I mean, you're taking that risk. So everything is prevention. Use the seatbelt, use the booster seat, use the car seat. Um, use a helmet, you know, all of these things are just prevention. You can really prevent things happening to you if you don't expose yourself to that. Again, I'm not saying don't live, but there's a lot of things that you can change. I certainly changed after my practice. I mean, I, I, I went skydiving once. I loved jumping up of high places, I'm not doing that anymore. I've seen way too many bad things happen. Um, I have this this horrible story. So this couple was married for like 20 years, separated. And after five or seven years, they reunited and wanted to get back together. So with all their kids and grandkids, uh, they they were like 60-ish, 70-ish, I think. They decided to get married again and they took a cruise um, through the Caribbean, you know. And they were all celebrating that their parents were getting back together. The wedding was going to be when they went back. So they went to Toro Negro, which is uh, this, uh, is it rappelling? Like where you like zip line, zip line, like this zip line uh, place that I've heard is beautiful and it's great. The woman, the the future wife fell off of, off of her harness and and went down like 50 feet, slammed into the, into the floor. She got to us and died, I think within five minutes of getting to the hospital because of probably a cardiac contusion. Um, so it's horrible. So it's, there's me telling this man that his wife died, that we couldn't do anything to save her. And they're in this cruise with all their kids and they were going to get married afterwards. So it's horrible, but you're putting yourself in that risk when, you know, when you do these things. So just think about it. Is it worth it? Is it worth that my family loses me? Maybe for some people, but you know, I just, I've changed a lot. I've changed the way I drive. I changed what I do, what I let my kids do. I mean, you should see the helmet my kid has. I mean, it's it's just things you need to do to prevent those things. Again, 5% will still happen, but most of it you can prevent. So definitely trauma can be basically eradicated with prevention. Well, I'm glad that I got my skydiving out of the way. Uh- <laughs> And that I got down safely, but yeah, that's, it's very interesting. I know that we've also talked like in Puerto Rico, there's like a lot of guns and um, mm-hmm. like gun safety is also another mm-hmm. big one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can't come to a Walmart and buy guns here. That's not legal here, but people do get it through the black market. Right. And they are getting um, pretty big guns. I mean, like AKAs, I'm saying, I'm telling you military automatic guns. So the, the gunshot wound victims that I get are just, wow, insane. I mean, these are war weapons. Uh, the damage is, it's real. Um, but gun, gun, uh, 
dice? Importación de armas. Like, um, for, like to, to, for you to be able to have a gun uh, here, you really, like in the States, you have to have a lot of licenses and you have your, like, your license with you, but it's not that easy to get it. Um, and it's not a very common thing here. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not the norm for sure. Yeah. So switching gears to something maybe a little bit more happy for some of our listeners. Um, I just, I really, I'm so impressed by you guys, both you and my brother, um, who I make fun of all the time, but truly do love him. <laughs> How is it, you know, balancing having two children and another husband and not another husband, but a husband who is also a physician? So I really do think that he know him knowing what I had to go through and what my day to day is like helps a lot. I think for people that are not in medicine, it's difficult to understand, you know, like we don't get to have a lunch break or we're just go, 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 maybe cannot un answer the phone or I need to sleep at the hospital for six nights a month, you know? So that is really helpful. He's very understanding and knows what I'm going through, but Alana help. I mean, I have a cleaning lady. I have a nanny. I have a, a mother-in-law who's like my angel who took care of my kids till like recently were two were too much. Um, you know, so I got, I got her a little help, but basically help. You need a lot of help. I always said to him, I am not going to stop working, you know, so we're going to have kids, but this one is not going to stop working. I'm going to keep working. So, you know, you just have to figure it out for the first kid. We were okay without any help with just my mother-in-law, but two, oh boy, gets complicated. Um, so I have a lot of help. I have a, someone that helps me clean and cook and someone that helps me take care of them so that I can, you know, exist. Right. Well, <laughs> but there's just no there's it's not a secret it's just you need help <laughs> well I'm glad that I think having a doctor's salary definitely helps with that um definitely and um definitely help here is a little more affordable than in the states for sure uh maybe a few purses and shoes less a month but that's okay <laughs> All right. And I have my um, my very last question is just I, I like to finish up by asking if you have any general advice for either pre-medical students, um, medical students currently or people that are in residency. Yeah, I mean, I talk with the students that come through me all the time about this, and especially when they're confused as to what specialty they want to get into, you know, and these are things I never thought when I was a student, um, but that I get to look back and and see first of all and it's 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 cliche but you have to do and choose what you really love it doesn't matter how it just it, it needs to be that way if you're if you're happy you know 90% of the time in your day cuz no specialty is perfect there's always going to be something negative about the specialty you're picking the right the right one because uh, then that translates into you coming back happy to your house and just everything you know So you have to do what you love. If you're really pumped about something, you got to choose that. You know, you got to work towards that. If you have two and you're not sure, then you stop and say, okay, how do I want my life to be? Do I want to work 365 days a year and want to be called? Am I bothered when they call me at home? Do I want to work the weekends? Do I not want to work weekends? Do I want to be in an office? Do I want to talk to patients? Do I not want to talk to patients? 
So there's a lot of things that you can think about maybe to help you choose between the two, you know, like what is my quality of life going to be? Do I want a boat and a beach house or am I okay with just my apartment, you know, and saving. So it's all, it's, everyone's different. Everyone's goals are different, but if you were like to the same, for sure, start thinking about that and, and maybe choose that. But if you love one and that one happens to be a surgical, you know, field and you know, oh, everyone talks about how hard it is, then you have no life for your training. It's worth it. Training is going to be hard. It's supposed to be hard. You know, this is not a hard, this is not an easy job. This is a very ser serious job. You, your patients' lives are in your hands. So they're trust they're trusting you with your with their life literally. So it's supposed to be hard, but trust me, once you're done, there's light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, you get to do whatever you want to do. Your practice is the way you want it, you know. So you're the boss of you, and you get to choose how you want to work. Um, so number one, number two, number three is do what you love. If you're not sure and you like both or two or three, then start thinking about what else you know you want your life to look like. That's really my, my best advice. And don't be like me and study at the last minute and, you know, don't really get into research because more and more that those things are needed. You, everyone's CVs are great. Everyone's scores are great. Everyone is, you know, I don't even know what you guys do anymore to get these scores really, but you need to be competitive uh, and you try to, you need to, you know, to work towards that, try to do the, try to do the voluntary work, try to do the research, try to do, you know, get involved in your community, something like that. Um, so that you have a better chance of getting that position that you want. Study hard. <laughs> well, I feel like I've really learned a lot about trauma and I'm so excited that we got to do this. So thank you mm -hmm. so much for being on with me today. For sure. You're welcome. My pleasure. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. I'm Chandler Davis. And this is PRN. <laughs>